Welcome to episode 25 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And James Cohn here. We are recording once again in 7th Ward, New Orleans. Um, this is, of course, the movie review website Swamp Flicks in podcast form. James, what have you seen since the last time we talked? Uh, there's three things that kind of stick out. First of all, I did see Hateful Eight, finally, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. I really like Tarantino's, like, his last few films that he's done. I know he's talked about only making 10 and then calling it quits, but I kind of hope he doesn't because, I don't know, I really like where where he's going. He's got to be pretty close to that number, right? He's probably like 8 well, or 9. Well, this was 8. Oh, okay. Hateful Eight, okay. yeah. So I saw that, which was really good. I saw this... I was kind of intrigued by when I saw it at the library just from the cover. It's this... Movie from the late 70s called The Visitor. It's got John Huston, and it's this weird mixture of, like, I guess all the stuff that was going on in the late 70s with, like, it's got New Age, like, spiritualism. It's got aliens. It's got, like, telekinesis. <laughs> it basically rips off a lot of other movies, like, better movies that I've seen from that time period. Is it, like, a sci-fi film or, like, a thriller? Or? It is sci-fi. It's, like... The battle of good and evil, and I, actually, what's so funny about it is the plot is like incomprehensible. <laughs> like that's why I wouldn't recommend it. But it has some very strong visuals. But like I could not understand what was going on, honestly. Yeah, which is not good. And I, I've heard too that the English version was edited in mm-hmm. a weird way, and scenes were taken out. And when you watch it, just doesn't make much sense. Yeah. But it's like practical effects imagery of like aliens and stuff or no it's just the aliens are just like regular actors with like bald heads <laughs> like it i don't know nothing um, special there no it, it has a few really trippy trippy parts but uh no i can't i can't recommend it and then the final movie i saw was uh oh god which <laughs> stars john denver which is awesome i've never seen him in a movie yeah, he's good, man. This was like a really good, wholesome movie about God coming back to Earth and like <laughs> telling this grocery store owner like to spread the gospel. And it sounds so like, I don't know, if it was done today, it'd be so cynical. But I don't know, it was just a really nice, sweet, wholesome, like subtly funny, really like good movie. And it's directed by Carl Reiner, who's done some really good stuff. I would definitely recommend that. Um, oh, God is definitely like the kind of movie that used to play on TV all the time. Like, I don't think I've ever actually watched it all the way through, but I would just see like George Burns like chomping yeah. cigars and I guess telling like one-liners. Yeah, it's a lot of one-liners. It's funny, I was talking to a co-worker that like, grew up in the 80s and he told me like this movie used to come out all the time like I guess it wasn't yeah. really popular when it first came out but then it got shown on television yeah I used to see it on TV all the time yeah and I remember seeing it like way back when I was a kid and watching again I thought it'd be like very dated because of the subject matter mm-hmm. like they've done movies like this like Bruce Almighty I guess yeah or, like Were those ones where, like, they did a remake where Chris Rock comes back to Earth, like he went to heaven too soon? Yeah. Uh, He comes back as, like, an old white guy. I can't remember what that's called, but... Yeah, I I can't... But I I saw it in the theater. Yeah, yeah, me too. (laughs) bad when you can't remember the title. It wasn't particularly good. But, no, this was, like, so so well done. Like, we kind of... You know, they could have went, like, really preachy with it. Mm -hmm. Or could have went really vague. And it found, like, a very nice spot of just, like, being a positive message without being overly preachy so i i really enjoyed it it had a sequel too which is kind of funny yeah like two oh god movies yeah which i actually want to 
want to seek out because <laughs> I enjoyed this one a lot. But what about you? Have you seen well, anything recently? Before I get to that, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. Hateful Eight, I really liked how like slow it is uh-huh. uh, in comparison to other Tarantino movies. Well, until about a halfway point. Yeah. When the violence comes, it comes like quick and there's a lot of it. Yeah. And it doesn't stop, really. And I guess they were kind of modeling that after the way uh, The Thing has that kind of like slow build until all the dominoes fall all at the same time. Because it's, it's kind of like a Western version of The Thing. But I, what I really like about that uh, movie was just seeing it in the theater. We, we saw that um, 70 millimeter print they did. Yeah, that would have been so nice. All they really added, like extra wise, were all these shots of like crosses in the snow or like horses running in the snow or like these like establishing big grand landscape shots yeah Yeah. and uh all that did was further slow down the plot and like expand the breathing room Mm -hmm. and uh like having a five minute intermission to like slow you down there as well and that was right after sam jackson's like really big fucked up speech so it just left you with really i love that that scene so uh, so twisted so uncomfortable and it just leaves you stewing in that for like five minutes during intermission I, I really like that deliberate like pacing. I think I think even in that scene, Sam Jackson says something like, "Oh, let's slow it down. Let's slow it way down here. Just really get into this." And that's something I've noticed with like Inglorious Bastards and some of his later films is he has kind of learned to slow it down. Like when you watch like Pulp Fiction and Jackie mm-hmm. Brown, the dialogue is so quick. It's hard. You're like trying to keep up with it. And yeah, in this one, I, I love these scenes of just characters sitting there talking and really letting the dialogue like kind of settle and let you think about it because all these characters have these complex relationships with each other and you kind of that's why i like the idea of the intermission kind of having time to think about like okay he's connected to him like this yeah and then just the way it all kind of culminates into a typical tarantino climax yeah he gets kind of pegged as being like in a not a rut but like sort of an immature state where like he hasn't changed that much in the past 20 years but I think with, like, the last three would be, like, what, this one, Django, and Glorious Bastards? Mm-hmm. I think there's, like, a kind of maturity in just how more patient he is with, like, payoff. So that when you do get those big grand, like, everything crumbling at the same time uh, climaxes, mm-hmm. it, it just means more because, like, the tension's been building longer. I think it's just a patience thing, really. Like, yeah. some people would rather a short, like, hour and a half minute, like, boom, you get bang for your buck as opposed to sitting in a theater for almost three hours but yeah that's definitely where he's going i mean i think he's definitely matured as a filmmaker mm-hmm. no doubt well um since the last time we talked i have gotten more into doris wishman who i told you about last time because i'm doing that 52 films by women pledge i told you about nude on the moon last time we talked yeah so i've seen a couple weirder ones from her that are even stranger than that oh in the 70s she made this movie called deadly weapons it's starring Chesty Morgan, who had the largest natural breasts I've ever seen on a woman. Uh, <laughs> so she's this advertising executive that's like completely unconvincing in mm-hmm. in that role, just because she's kind of like space-eyed, like she just kind of stares out the window and stuff. She doesn't seem like a fast-talking executive type. Uh, her husband's murdered by these mobsters, and she decides to go undercover as a burlesque dancer to get her revenge. And she kills the men as revenge with her giant breasts. Yes. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. That sounds like Russ, like Russ Meyer's fantasy. You know, it's like Ebert's fantasy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So like the way she kills these guys is that she drugs their wine, like 
while seducing them. And then they're, once they're kind of sleepy, she just lays on top of them. And when she pulls her breasts out to smother them, there's like a roar on the soundtrack, like a lion's coming out. (laughs) (laughs) And then she makes these kind of like weird orgasmic moans while they're like struggling to breathe. Oh man. It's so weirdly unerotic and just like ugly. And there's only two kills in the entire film, even though that's the hook that she has like these killer tits. Uh, Damn, I'll have to check that out. That sounds great. You definitely have to like have a little patience for it. It it moves a little slow and there's not like a high body count, Mm -hmm. but just the weirdness of that being a premise for a film and just watching it. And she has this kind of like punk amateurism to her work that I think is really funny. Yeah, I like that it seems like it could be maybe like a male fantasy thing. Like, oh, I just want to be smothered in tits and <laughs> die and go to heaven but it, that just sounds like kind of grotesque yeah if nothing else just look up a picture of chesty morgan like i can't remember her name's her... chesty i can only imagine <laughs> i can't remember what her like burlesque career name was um but she's she's just a really like interesting person she had like a really cool life too and there is a clip of wishman and ebert on conan together and uh, i think wishman gifted him a uh, signed chesty morgan <laughs> publicity still uh, uh that's cool because apparently he was a fan for obvious reasons i'm sure i'm sure and uh the other one i saw from her that was really interesting because she works so much in this exploitation it was cool to see her stray a little bit in this 80s movie called a night to dismember it's about a series of axe murders where this this girl gets out of the mental institution for killing these two teenage boys supposedly and her sister and her brother are conspiring to both gaslight her to where she's so crazy she gets recommitted and frame her for more murders um, so that she'll go back to jail. Hmm. The movie is completely incomprehensible and kind of a trashy masterpiece and it's like just complete disregard for linear plot or explaining anything. The sort of legend of the movie is that once she went to get the negatives developed in the lab, supposedly they were destroyed by somebody who was angry with her for some financial issues. And so she had to like cobble together the movie to make it make sense after the fact. But people think the truth is that she purposefully recut it to put in Samantha Fox, who was like a porn star at the time, mm-hmm. to try to get more people, like more butts in seats. And in doing that, she completely overdid the plot from the first movie, like threw it out the window, and had a constant narration from beginning to end. Like, instead of hearing dialogue between characters, most of the film is just this detective telling you what happened in the story. That that sounds similar to, like, an Ed Wood totally, kind of totally. scenario. Like, just putting together B-rolls and just talking over it as a way to develop plot. Yeah, it's got kind of a um, Glenn or Glenda vibe to it mm-hmm. in that way. It just tries to get by on just delivering the goods. So there's all these like fingers being chopped off by an axe or like a head being crushed under a car tire mm-hmm. and all this like bright red like house paint colored blood. Uh, but none of it's really like earned. Oh I no, it, yeah. it makes no sense in the plot. Uh, it's really just a wonderfully like challenging piece of trash. Like <laughs> it's, it's one of those movies that's a total train wreck, but it's like fascinating to watch it anyway. Well, to go back to one of the films I brought up, that sounds very similar to The Visitor mm-hmm. in the sense too, like Sam Peckinpah, he's like a famous director yeah actually had a role in the film but he was so hard to work with that they had to cut out (laughs) his scenes and so that leaves a weird void and they had to re-edit some stuff but also in the sense that like the plot is so hard to follow like it takes a lot of work to like stay with it that's one thing i noticed you know in a really good movie you're like sucked in and you're in the film and with some of these the plot is so like thrown together that you're like outside of it kind of looking at it trying to 
parse it out. How is the pacing in that one? Seventies films have languid pacing sometimes. No, well, pacing wise, it like sometimes it's just like really boring mm-hmm. and slow, and then it will get really frantic and like weird out of nowhere, and it's just like what can't like get yeah. into the groove with this thing. But that, I mean, that sounds. I don't know. That sounds more enjoyable just because there's sounds like there's more payoff. And and to like Doris Wishman's credit and also with people like Ed Wood and Russ Meyer, the movie's only 60-something minutes long. Right. So it's much easier to digest something that's a complete mess in that way if it's going to move quickly and only take an hour of your time. Yeah, instead uh, of like an hour and 50 minutes. Yeah, that's a little yeah. more challenging. Um, like, but yeah, definitely if you enjoy that, like Russ Meyer, Ed Wood. I knew John Waters was a big fan of her work. Uh, there's definitely some weirder Doris Wishman movies. I- I'm still going through them myself. Yeah, I definitely... I mean, both of those sound pretty good. They're pretty goofy. That'd be a nice double feature. Yeah. to do that soon. Well, today we're going to be talking about a couple double features. We're going to be talking mm-hmm. about films that have been remade very closely to their original um, Virtually form. shot for shot. Yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Don't repeat yourself. Yeah. Only I repeat myself. Yeah, really? Yeah, and when you're repeating yourself, how do you keep it fresh? How do you make no, this I guy different? I try not to repeat myself. Yeah. I mean, this is a different take on, on the same story. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I would bore myself, so I don't want to bore myself. So, I mean, it's subtle differences, but I try, tried to make it different. Yeah. Do you think this one is going to catch on? I mean, the first one was so, so. good, and no I mean, one went no one's, at least not in this country, which is a big shame. So, I think with... Uh, the more recognizable cast in this country, I think this one's going to be a big hit. I hope so. Do you ad-lib a lot, or is this uh, all by the script? What I'm saying right now? <laughs> I wrote this in the hotel before I got here. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And what did you make me watch for this episode, James? Well, to, try to, to kind of tie in the theme with the, the remakes, I decided to have you watch Death at a Funeral, uh, the 2007 version, not the 2010 Chris Rock right. version. The original is directed by Frank Oz. It is a British, kind of like surreal comedy about a family that's going to a funeral of the death of their patriarch. And basically, secrets come out about the family the situation gradually escalates in ridiculousness and peter dinklage makes an appearance uh and really it's just i had to watch it because i thought it was one of the funniest movies i've seen in like a really long time what did you think i mean it it was weird because i started watching it uh by myself Uh and two things i kind of got this like uh deja vu feeling like i had seen it before just because I knew enough about it to already know like a couple of the big twists that were coming. Mm-hmm. But I think that was just from seeing stuff about it around. Because it is a popular like kind of cult comedy at this point. But watching it by myself, I was sitting there kind of chuckling but not laughing. And then I ended up saving it for a time when me and Cece could watch it together. Mm-hmm. And I was just screaming laughing. Like, it's one of those comedies that needs like an audience. Like, it needs multiple people to watch together. It, it's an interesting clash between really broad humor like shit jokes and just like a little bit of gay panic humor but not in like a derogatory way and then combined with this very mild-mannered um british setting where everyone's trying to keep a cool on any outward expressions of emotion uh even though they're at a funeral they're trying to stay reserved and all that just kind of blows up in their face and i was howling laughing through a large portion of the film yeah and that's kind of the comedic dynamic in the film is this 
sort of comedy of like manners like everyone's trying to be very proper meanwhile there's very kind of dark stuff going on with like just people on drugs and i don't know it just goes in really like it goes in places that you don't think this kind of film is going to go with like the poop jokes and the necro almost like necrophilia Mm -hmm. jokes but it's done in a really like almost like sweet like it's kind of a tender movie about like the bond of family and all this but it's also really crude and i don't know it it definitely walks that line really well it sets a really um specific tone in the first scene as well where um you track over the credits this coffin on its way to the house uh, that's supposed to have this this man's dead father in the coffin and it arrives (laughs) and the first scene is him sort of like mildly uh, informing the pallbearers that delivered the coffin that that's not in fact his father's <laughs> body. That's not my father. And they have to like bring it back to the uh, to the morgue to, to get the correct coffin. And I think that sets a really specific tone. They even use that gag in the trailer because it really does like show you what kind of humor the movie's going to have. It, it There are these big scenes where characters act absolutely ridiculously but it, it's all sort of centered on this like contained need to not have these emotional outbursts even though you're in an emotional event yeah and the the movie is kind of like kind of tragic in a way i mean once you find out the father's the father's secret and i don't know it's um it's got like some dramatic weight to it as well like it's not just there for the laughs like i do also like the way that the family interacts and Mm -hmm. very like fleshed out they are caricatures i guess but Really, the performances in this movie are what hold it together more than anything else. And I mean, my favorite performance, I, you'd probably agree, is, um, what's his name? Uh, Alan Tudyk? Tudyk, that's right. I never remember his name. He yeah. gives one of the greatest physical comedy performances I've ever seen. So Alan Tudyk is uh, an outsider to the family. He's dating right. one of the cousins. Um, and he's meeting his his soon-to-be wife's father, who already hates him. Uh, <laughs> he has to sort of perform better than ever at this uh, meetup because they're going to announce that they're getting married. And he accidentally takes his brother-in-law's psychedelic drugs that he's experimenting on. It's like a... Uh, well, he thinks he's getting Valium, but he mistakenly takes... It's like amphetamines some... mixed with like LSD and like other chemicals. Yeah, it's like research chemical LSD in a lab kind of thing. Uh, and then for the next... That's in the first like 10 minutes. And for the rest of the film, Alan Tudyk is just running amok. He gets naked. <laughs> uh, he hugs the widow a little too long. Um, and is fascinated by the parts of her veil that kind of jut out. Uh, he gets on the roof yeah. at one point. It just escalates. He's yeah. convinced that the coffin is moving during the eulogy. So he like opens up the coffin to reveal the truth that the body's still alive, which is just patently not true. And oh everyone God. freaks out. What's funny about this is that it would be a really broad, like unrealistic depiction of someone on psychedelic drugs. But he makes these weird faces uh, where he's just trying to contain himself and act human but it's like lizard brain is like coming out (laughs) and it's just fucking crazy how well controlled his face is in this movie and how funny he is just to watch him squirm with how uncomfortable he is on the drug anyone that's like been on drugs in public knows that feeling like that is how you probably look to outsiders but that's also how you feel on the inside he's just trying to like hold it together and the fact too like this movie 
does feel very British in that way of like the most important thing is to maintain appearances. Yeah. You know, and when you throw in something like psychedelic drugs into the mix, it throws all that off. And the fact that he's still trying to, you know, be all proper when he just physically can't just leads to some very funny moments. Yeah, and that's what, like, most of the humor is, is you have these children, and I'm calling them children, but they're all in their 30s. But they act like They act like little kids, and they're scrambling around to put out all these fires before, like, the adults notice, and the adults are in their 60s. Uh, So you have, like, uh, one character is trying to, like, bang a friend of the family instead of, like, actually performing his duty and writing a eulogy. You have one character... Even though he's a writer. Even though he's, like, a world-renowned writer. He doesn't doesn't want to do it. Yeah. You have another character who has to take care of this old man who's, like, basically incontinent. And then you have um, Alan Tudyk, obviously, on drugs. Um, And then there's this whole other revelation that uh, the two brothers have to keep under wraps so that the rest of the family doesn't know uh, why Peter Dinklage is there for what mysterious purpose and what he's trying mm-hmm. to reveal. And all this is to protect uh, the mother, um, who's played by Jane Asher, mm-hmm. who was in The Mask of the Red Death as like a, a teenager. Um, oh, what? really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, and she used to date Paul McCartney back in the 60s. Oh, crazy. Uh, it's crazy to see her like in her 60s in this like uh, broad comedy after, like mm-hmm. I don't know, one of my favorite films of all time. So it's it's just funny watching these basically adults act like children so that nobody will know how like messy their like bullshit lives are. And I think one of the genius things that the movie does is kind of develop each character's story separately for a time and then as the movie progresses the characters start interacting mm-hmm. with each other and and that's what really like starts to like ratchet up the intensity and that that's what I loved about this movie uh, was like kind of the pacing of it like I was wondering like how's it gonna keep up this like crazy like crazy shit keeps happening every like 10 minutes and it just keeps escalating to the final climax which is so over the top you're like what the hell (laughs) this is crazy yeah well i meant to ask you because i know um i didn't get a chance to watch the remake yeah uh, the 2010 chris rock but how does that compare to this one just it's flat out awful it's awful uh the only the only similarity in casting is that peter dinklage played the same character in both films um and he's obviously a very recognizable actor um, and he does pretty much the same thing in both movies, but that's the only thing that's consistent. Uh, a lot of the jokes in the script are exactly the same, mm-hmm. but the casting and the tone of it is just so wrong. Basically, the the brother in the British version, uh, who is supposed to say the eulogy for his dad, um, and is just not very interesting as a writer, he is a very milk toast, mild mannered guy who's just not. And that's played by He's Chris boring. Rock, right? Yeah, Chris okay. Rock plays him in the uh, remake. And he's just got this explosive anger in every scene, which is just not right for the material. Like he's being, he's doing his usual Chris yeah. Rock like outrage stuff, which can be funny in the right in the right context. But like uh, in the scene where in the opening shot where they deliver the wrong body, he's like, "You mean you fucked up and brought the wrong person to my dad's fucking funeral?" And all this stuff, it just kind of like deflates the humor of the scenario. Well, yeah, and that's also that character's arc is kind of he learns to stand up for himself by yeah. the end. So for him to like be so assertive early on, it, yeah, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, all that. Um, I think there's a f- tension in the British version that's all about containment and maintaining appearances. Right. 
Uh, and all of that's just lost when you have everybody already being over the top. Like, the scenario is already over the top enough that having these, like, sort of boring people trying to contain that right. scenario is one thing. But when you have an over-the-top scenario with over-the-top people making it worse, it's like, well, of course your life's fucked up. You're all, like, yeah. buffoons. So it seems like the that remake kind of just further solidify what makes the original yeah. so good. Because it is about, like, mild-mannered people in a very intense situation. And that's what kind of gives it some humanity. And so, yeah, I could see how that would be a bad remake. And then you have uh, Alan Tudyk's wonderful performance is replaced by uh, James Marsden, who is the guy from The Box. Who uh, I actually like. He's fine. I don't, I don't see how he could touch the, you know, the It's original. just not funny. Like, he does these, like, really broad comedy, like, I'm on drugs uh, maneuvers and it's just not as funny as what Tudyk does which is like just weird looking like Tudyk gives this like inhuman performance with his face yeah his facial expressions are really like I don't know it's like his face is melting sometimes like so good and um, I think it's also worth noting that the remake was made by the guy who made the Wicker Man remake with Nicolas Cage that guy Neil Labute is just not a particularly mm. interesting director in any way. Well, like, the original is made by Frank Oz. Yeah. Who, you know, has made a lot of good films. Right. So. Yeah, it's just not, it's just not necessary in any way. And I think it undercuts its own effect with getting rid of trying to contain the scenario of a funeral where you're supposed to behave. Basically, you're supposed to act selflessly for a few hours to mourn someone else and mm-hmm. to, um, pay tribute to someone else's life you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself so in the British one you have all these characters trying their hardest to keep their own personal issues from disrupting that (laughs) task and then in the American remake you have all these over the top people who draw attention to themselves at all times and just kind of like deflates any tension that would make you laugh out of like discomfort maybe that just just highlights the difference between like British culture and American culture yeah, you know, maybe so. That, but I'll probably still see it just to, for bizarre, yeah. you know, fascination. But the most fun I had with it was Tracy Morgan as a character. He plays the guy who gets shit all over his hand and face. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I, the reason I like Tracy Morgan is because he always calls attention to himself as someone who's acting. Like it's never a character he's playing. He's always like doing mm. this weird like meta comedy thing, which I don't even know if it's like bad acting or like intentionally disruptive. But I like how he's like, I'm in a movie at all times during this. Well, and I wonder too, because he's like the character that gets shit on his hand. So and he's like, I'm in a movie and it's shit. It's like <laughs> really bad. I don't even want to be in this movie. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you like the original. I, yeah, it's I knew very you funny. Would. It's really funny. I definitely recommend it to anyone that hasn't seen it. Even for a movie where I knew the two like bigger twists that were coming, it really didn't matter or affect anything in my viewing of it. Like it was just funny. Like throughout, I don't mm-hmm. think there's a good five minutes where I wasn't laughing like very hard. <laughs> I was losing my yeah. breath laughing and through a lot of this. Yeah, I I really have a soft spot for British comedies, and this is one of the best ones I've seen in recent memories. So yeah, me too. Why was he dressed like that? He's a transvestite. Uh, not exactly. 
A man who dresses in women's clothing in order to achieve a sexual change or satisfaction is a transvestite. But in Norman's case, he was simply doing everything possible to keep alive the illusion of his mother being alive. And when reality came too close, when danger or desire threatened that illusion, he'd dress up, even to a cheap wiggy board. He'd walk about the house, sit in her chair, speak in her voice. He tried to be his mother. And uh, now he is. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Um, we're going to be talking about both the original 1960 proto slasher Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and its 1990 remake by Gus Van Sant. Gus Van Sant, who pissed a lot of people off by attempting to make a shot-for-shot remake of the original film. Oh, man. I went back and read some reviews for this, like, when it mm-hmm. first came out, and no one gave it the time of day. Like, it really did piss off, like, critics and film buffs alike. Like, anyone that loved the original seemed to immediately detest this idea of uh, shot-for-shot remake. And to go back uh, to 1960, when Psycho premiered, it ruffled a lot of feathers because it's got a really unconventional plot structure mm-hmm. and a lot of like lurid shots of naked bodies and violence um a lot of slashing like i, I just called it a proto slasher and it really is like a early body count movie yeah in the way that like jason and freddie and chucky all eventually took over in the 80s and there and there's also that like psychosexual kind of element with him and his mother and yeah so yeah i think for the time that was must have made a lot of waves when it first came out. It wasn't treated as badly as Peeping Tom, which came out in Britain the same year. And that one was basically a career ender for Powell, who mm-hmm. uh, did like the Red Shoes and Black Narcissus. Hitchcock got by on, um, I guess, audiences just being like willing to pay to see that kind of like shocking stuff in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and his work was sort of later reassessed as being like artful. Uh, it was kind of treated like genre trash when it first came out. Well, and I'll say too, I think obviously the Hitchcock version is like classic. Right. But I do think the Gus Van Sant has kind of worn better with time, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially in like critics circles. Like I saw a lot of recent online discussions and articles going back to it. And it kind of seemed to start this conversation and film criticism that I think is like still relevant today. So and, and it's getting a new Blu-ray touch-up right now. So they're going to have this like nice Blu-ray edition um, with some of the colors restored and some audio commentaries and extras. It's getting like a nice film treatment, whereas for the last 20-something years, it's just been kind of like disregarded as like a mistake Gus Van Sant made. Among many, he's got a very uneven film career for me. Yeah, he does. I It's like one way or the other with him. Either I really like his films or more often than not, I... I don't care for them, but so well, I guess like where should we start? Should we try to do you compare these two? I mean, they're so similar. I think we should at and, least talk about what the original plot of the first Psycho film is, um, and it would be kind of silly to do a plot description of both films because although it's not a shot-for-shot remake, a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the plot is exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the lines are word for word. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I do think it's interesting. There's these little micro differences Mm -hmm. that seem kind of arbitrary at first, but I don't know. I think they're 
might be more to those differences. But uh, yeah, I think just starting with like a general plot description. So basically you have this uh, secretary who, long story short, steals a bunch of money from her employer Mm -hmm. that she's supposed to deposit in the bank. She runs with the money to across state lines to meet up with her boyfriend who won't make a proper woman out of her. They're having like these like sexual escapades in hotel rooms and stuff instead of actually living together. Mm-hmm. And she thinks this money is what's going to give them a life together. She has to pull over in the rain uh, both because her guilt of stealing the money is tormenting her and because it's just like hard to see the road. Uh, kind of, there's kind of this cacophony in her head of all these different things she's wrestling with, and she winds up at the infamous Bates Motel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she rents a room from Norman Bates, and everything else from there's pretty much been spoiled by film history. Yeah, I, I think to talk about these two films at all, I mean, you kind of have to spoil it. Yeah, I mean, well, this protagonist is stabbed halfway through the film by Norman in the shower. Which is one of the most iconic on-screen deaths, I'd say, of all time. Well, and also, like you were talking about, very innovative from a plot perspective to have mm-hmm. your main character killed halfway through the movie. Yeah. You know, especially like in 1960, that I'm sure was like kind of came as a shock. S- still now, I think if, if we watched more movies where we followed a character and got invested in them for 40 minutes and then they were suddenly out of the picture because they're like slain, mm-hmm. um, that's, that still be, would be an unconventional plot structure to this day. But... Like I said, it's been spoiled just from like oversaturation in the cultural eye that it's not as shocking now, but you gotta have to keep that in mind. Like, no one would have expected that at the time. Mm-hmm. Just like no one would have expected that Norman's overbearing mother, who he converses with throughout the entirety of the film, she is revealed to just be an extension of his personality, and he keeps her dead, mummified body in the house uh, and dresses up like her and murders people because. She's just sort of taken resonance in his mind as like a second persona that he uses to shame himself whenever he has like unclean thoughts about women. And he sort of acts through his mother to punish himself and to punish the women that he's attracted to. The interesting thing about this movie to me, watching it now, is that I got this really eerie feeling about five minutes into it that I had just never seen it before. And as I got about 15 minutes into it, I was like, oh yeah, this is my first viewing of Psycho. Because <laughs> you watch these, like, um, they used to do these, like, AFI... 100 t- years, 100 movies. Yeah, they I do think. this, like, uh, cable countdowns of those. Mm-hmm. And just, like, reading about movies all the time. I've seen the shower scene before. I've right. seen the final reveal with the mother. And I knew the entire plot from A to Z. But I just had never watched the whole film. And I didn't realize that until I was actually sitting down to watch it. Yeah, yeah. The thing that turned me around on realizing that was just keeping an eye on what Anthony Perkins does as Norman Bates in this movie. Um, I always just saw him as that final scene where he looks up at the camera and he gives the camera that evil eye. Mm -hmm. I always saw that as his performance. But the truth is his caricature as Norman Bates is this super cash kind of just, just kicking it. Uh, he eats milk milk and sandwiches for dinner and he mm-hmm. like pops popcorn in his mouth and sort of casually like answers the law's questions. He has his sleeves rolled up to the elbow. He's just kind of like relaxing. And then every now and then somebody will say something that will kind of piss him off a little bit and that's when the mother character starts to eat to the surface. So I'm with you because I actually went to Universal Studios mm-hmm. where they did, they have like a psycho like... They have the set, basically. They have a whole Hitchcock display out there. Yeah, and I I saw that as a kid before I actually saw the movie. I saw the movie later, so I knew the, like, iconography. 
before seeing it and even seeing it as a kid any and watching it again now it's it is a great film from like just the way the plot develops in the script to like a lot of those lines when you see them done again in the new version they still resonate and there's still this like unease suspense behind it but since you brought up Anthony Perkins uh, and his performance uh-huh. I think that is a good point of comparison or to bring up the uh, 1998 one because that's one of the most glaring differences I found between the yeah. movies was Vaughn's performance of Norman Bates was very like unhinged and creepy and Perkins on the other hand he's like sympathetic in mm-hmm. a way and I think I read an interview with Hitchcock where he even like stated that he wanted to make uh, Norman Bates a sympathetic character and he does he comes across as like wholesome and just nice and sort of like subdued whereas the Vaughn betrayal is much more sinister and I think that that I think that that's totally intentional yeah like I don't think it's that that was like Vaughn like this is how I want to portray I think Gus Van Sant like went out when he made this movie to make the Norman Bates character less sympathetic like, I think that was a, a goal of his when making this movie. I don't, I don't know about the intent. I, I can say that, well, probably before I get into this, I should say that I thought the remake was better than I was going to, than I initially oh, yeah, heard I, it was going to be. I agree, yeah. But the only reason I'm prefacing this with that is just I hated Vince Vaughn in this movie. Really? I thought he was awful. Uh, he does this, like, like you said, unhinged with, like, a capital U, and it's very early in his career. He's very, he's doing, like, a showy, I'm playing Norman Bates performance, mm-hmm. where, like, he punctuates a lot of his lines with this, like, kind of nervous laugh, but it's really put upon. Yeah, the giggling was a weird touch, and... Uh, just the physique of him is wrong to me, too. He's a handsome, like, meathead kind of looking guy. I don't normally like him in general, so it might just be me being biased, but I just felt like he was, like, completely miscast for the role. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my favorite things in the movie have to do when he's not around. I thought I thought all the other casting was kind of okay. Uh, the casting wasn't the best part of the remake by any stretch, but he was definitely I, the worst part of the remake to me. Yeah, and just the way the, his scenes with Anne Heche, I because I watched the movies back to back. Me too. And for one thing, I noticed first of all is like Vince Vaughn is much taller in comparison to Anne Heche than Anthony Perkins to. Lee. Right. So there's already that like he looks more sinister just watching him next to her because he's so much taller but I notice in the the newer one that Van Sant tends to focus the camera closer on the actors. Mm-hmm. So like the scene in the parlor where he gives her dinner or whatever and there's all the stuffed birds like in the Hitchcock's version the camera is kind of further back and you're just like the owls in focus and Perkins is like kind of like sharing the scene with the owl, but in the new one, all the focus is on the on Norman Bates. In yeah, that scene that was one of the biggest changes to the between the two films for me was the owls. Uh, as strange as that seems, there's a conversation early in the 1961 where they have a, a small talk in his parlor over sandwiches and milk, mm-hmm. and um, he discusses sort of the nature of taxidermy to her kind of at length and. In the other film, those birds are more in the basement where he where he keeps his mother. In the basement in the original, it's completely bare and it's like a fruit like a fruit preserving room. Mm-hmm. So there's maybe some jars on the shelves, but there's really nothing in there. Uh, in the Gus Van Sant version, there's all these taxidermied animals, and that like kind of clues you in on how he's been preserving his mother's body. And this is kind of like really creepy. It reminded me of the cell a little bit. 
Yeah. Um, There's kind of this creepy imagery in that last scene that I thought was a really interesting choice to do that. To be perfectly honest, I preferred some of the scenes in the Van Sant version for that specific reason. Like, that scene's a good example. Like, I like that the owls are, like, so a part of the scene because it, with the dialogue, they're talking about taxidermy and just have the owls, like, be more kind of a sinister presence while also, like, having the camera closer in on the actors does give the scene a more suspenseful uh, feeling to me than the Hitchcock version where you're kind of watching from a distance and seems like he's saying, like, oh, just watch these characters and you kind of make your own judgments where Van Sant's just, like, put throwing it at you. <laughs> and, you know, it's just a different thing, but it is shot-for-shot shot remake, but not really. There's, like, subtle subtlety there that... That's why I think the movie, even though I do find it enjoyable, it is in some ways a failed experiment. Um, I was listening to this other podcast called Shockwaves. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like the Bloomhouse Horror Production Company's podcast. One of the guys is doing a commentary for the new DVD release. Um, And he was talking about how Gus Van Sant originally planned on doing the Shot for Shot remake. And that's what everybody focuses on. And when they first started shooting, they did a couple like iconic scenes first, like the shower scene, and they filmed it exactly shot for shot. Like they mimicked everything they could from Hitchcock's film by frame mm-hmm. to get it right. And it was an interesting experiment, but what they found in the editing room is when they played it, it was just awful. Like it just didn't work. And I guess it's just from the subtle differences between actors and scenarios like that, that he decided from that point, once they were looking at dailies, to sort of add new stuff to it or to like give the actors a little more room. And that's the most interesting parts of this movie is Mm -hmm. like the things it does differently. And I, I wish that he had realized that before they started shooting and added more of the weird stuff. Like the taxidermy birds would be a good thing to add more of. Well... And I'll also say to that is the metaphysical stuff. Like there's, and there's so like, there's so few of them, but like when she is murdered in the shower, Mm -hmm. uh, he adds this shot of her pupil dilating. And then you see this very brief image of like a thunderstorm. There's like rolling clouds. There's a cow in the middle of a road. Cow in the road. There's a naked woman blindfolded, like very nine inch nails, uh, closer, uh, imagery in that shot. Yeah, and when William H. Macy, who plays the like private investigator, when he gets when he gets murdered, there's some more of right. those like really brief, like dreamlike things. And yeah, I'm with you. I wish that there was more of that because I don't know. It, I feel like it does add something to it that Hitchcock. I think Hitchcock wasn't really concerned about the like metaphysical, right, dreamlike stuff, like which is fine. The psychosexual, like Freudian stuff, was definitely more of the time in 1960 than it would have been in the late 90s. Uh, so it makes sense that Hitchcock would be more interested in that. But by the time Von Sant was making this film, I mean, this is somebody who used to collaborate with like Burroughs and mm-hmm. uh, used to make these kind of weird art films. Um, it's just kind of a shame he didn't put more of his own stamp on the material from the get-go. Right, because it... Yeah, you're right. Those are the parts that I... The times where I enjoyed the the new one more. Yeah. Um, and I will say as well, you would think that adding color to a black and white film in the 90s, uh, this is at a time when you had like Turner Classic Movies colorizing old works just because people weren't interested in watching black and white stuff. They're like, mm-hmm. why would I watch that? I have color TV. That's usually like a kind of ignorant, like lazy way of thinking. But I, I actually think that adding color to Psycho makes it more of its own work as well. 
Uh, I really like the bright colors of like Anne Heche's like wardrobe and see I, the blood I, and stuff like that. I think it works. I, I well, I disagree with that difference being better for me just because the the bright like pastels and some of her outfits are really like kind of gaudy. Yeah, they're bright, blinding, blinding. But just for for me, I think of Psycho as yeah, it's this proto slasher, but it's also it's a noir it's film mm-hmm. noir and when i always think of noir films it's the black and white aesthetic yeah so to me like bringing in color to a film that's so part of the you know noir genre it i don't know it didn't it didn't work for me i guess oh i'm not saying it improved it i'm just saying it made it more of its own product yeah. Which, which I think was more of the kind of stuff that was needed in the uh in the remake oh yeah that i mean that's true I'd agree with that. Just because, like you said, I wish he would have just scrapped the shot-for-shot aspect and just did, like, his own weird remake, like, a more artsy Mm -hmm. kind of remake of it. I think that could have been great. I mean, as it stands, it's still, like, a good, you know, glad that it was made. Yeah. uh, But Uh, Something that did work in, like, trying to keep it as close to the original as possible, um, I watched the the remake on headphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you listen to the score, um, it's arranged by Danny Elfman. It's, oh, the score is awesome. It's the exact same notes from the first film, but he re-records it with like these different flourishes and in stereo. Uh, so if you listen to it in headphones, there's like this really interesting sound design in that movie. Where the the first one, I, I I don't know if it was recorded in mono or what, but it's not it's not as like immersive of a feeling is listening to the updated Danny Elfman score which I really enjoyed that that was one of the best aspects. I really I really enjoyed the score too and especially I don't know if you remember towards the, towards the end where where Norman Bates is finally arrested and the sheriff is kind of explaining his diagnosis mm-hmm. and the score that goes on while he is telling the story is very weird like really delay heavy guitars like kind of ambient strange uh soundtrack which was a really nice touch because it's not like that in the original yeah and having those sort of like dreamlike things like with the soundtrack i think that could have like again i wanted more of that could have right helped make it its own thing what do you think about them tacking on that like psychological explanation at the end of both films that that does feel dated to yeah. me like you talked about like the Freudian stuff was much more popular in the 60s. And yeah, to have like a psychiatrist explain the diagnosis. Yeah, I that feels dated to me. I will say one interesting thing is that in the first version, they talk about him cross-dressing and they kind of have to explain that it's not sexual, um, that there's like more going on to that. And in the remake, they just cut out that line because it's not really needed to be explained. Like... No one thought he was dressing as his mom for, like, sexual pleasure. Well, okay, and that kind of goes to something else. Uh, I think probably the biggest difference that got talked about in the press was the shower shower scene where he's watching her undress. Mm-hmm. And you actually watch Vince Vaughn masturbate. Yeah. And this one, as opposed to the, the original where you are kind of looking at it through the peephole, but you never actually see Norman Bates, like, pleasuring himself. He's kind of, like just a casual observer like kind of like a child would watch someone undressing but there's not this like really blatant sexual aspect to it which i think i i, I do think is another way that the remake improves on the original the mm. original does feel kind of 
heteronormative. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, with the explaining the cross-dressing aspect, and with the remake, it's more out in front. It feels more, like, honest, well, I guess. Well, I've or... actually heard the opposite argument for the original versus the remake as far as the masturbation goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard people sort of talk about, in horror movies, especially in what the slasher would become later, you have these killers chasing down young women who are sexually active with these like phallic instruments mm-hmm. and it's like sort of an act of sexual frustration uh in killing someone with that uh and they're saying like okay in the original norman bates wasn't able to get off uh either because he had a physical or a psychological barrier and so he expressed that frustration with stabbing her so it's a completely different dynamic to have mm. vince vaughn jerk off to completion and then kill her anyway like what is that what's the difference there in in his sexual frustration versus like his desire um i don't know if either of those necessarily better they're both gross in their own way but um <laughs> yeah well I mean, and actually, that is a that is a good point. Um, but that just shows that there is merit to the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, if just changing that subtle detail could bring up this conversation, then it was worth doing. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it does have a, a new way of looking at the material, and you can like, I guess, debate if it's because I read in a, an analysis of it that said it was like a more feminist mm. take on the. So it's like the opposite. How so? Well, in the sense that the female characters, Gus Van Sant's version, are much more assertive. They're much more... Like, you think about the sister character. Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, much more like... She takes control. And Viggo Mortensen playing Anne Heche's lover... Yeah. Or whatever, is much more like kind of in the background. And you had to see his butt. So there's like some uh, nudity uh, for both sides of the fence. That's <laughs> right. As yeah, but... Yeah, and same thing with the Anne Heche character. Like, she is a little more, I don't want to say, like, conniving or whatever, but she seems a little more, like, in control. Like, this is a decision I made, like, and I kind of regret it, but I made it where, whereas the Lee version seems more like, because she's older, so it seems more like, oh, this is my final affair that I can have, and I, I've, like, run out of options, and this is what I need to do yeah. to get away from my terrible life. But having this younger version in Anne Heche, it's more like, no, I'm in control, and I just fuck these men that were, like, hitting on me, and they have all this money. Like, I'm just going to rob from it. So that aspect of it is seems more feminist to me, but I do see what you're saying about the masturbation yeah. aspect, like, subverting that It almost sounds bit. like he changed it without thinking about what it meant in the original version like oh they didn't show him jerking off because it was the 60s i'm gonna go the extra mile and be in your face 90s and just show this dude splooge on the wall yeah i don't know if it's that or if he had some like real like message Mm -hmm. he was trying to get with that it definitely changes the dynamic either way yeah i just like it does kind of seem like it's the former though that it was just like well it's the 90s and people want to see you know they're desensitized they need to see Shocking material. Shocking. So, yeah, you get more nudity, mm-hmm. you know, like Viggo Mortensen's butt. In the shower scene, there's a big difference, like, at the end where she's laying dead and you see the blood go down the drain, her eyeball, you know, the camera kind of circling around it. In the new one, like, there's a shot where you just see Anne Hayes completely naked from the back. You With these, her. like, really gory back wounds from the stabbing. Uh, these, like, open, like, stab wounds. Really but, gross. But I think the... Hitchcock's version is far superior in that shower scene yeah. for that specific reason, like what it leaves out. And the new one, it's like, okay, like now I see your terrible back wounds, I see your ass, and like 
I don't know. It seemed kind of unnecessary and just trying to appease, you know, the audience. Yeah. Sort of. So, yeah, that seems to undermine the whole idea that he was kind of forward thinking and wanted it to be a more progressive because... I don't know. It, how do you feel about the casting uh, in the in the remake? Like, how does how does that change the dynamic? I think it's pr- pretty good. I get like, yeah. I thought I thought Anne Hache actually did pretty well. I thought, I yeah, mean, she's like, fine. I thought William H Macy as the investigator was pretty good. I thought that was the best casting choice probably out of anybody. Um, On the other side of that, I thought Viggo Mortensen was kind of like there. Yeah, whatever. And then uh, Julianne Moore again, like kind of there like yeah. it's pretty interesting that this was filmed pretty close to Boogie Nights and has three actors from that film in it and you know a lot of uh, those three actors uh, Philip Baker Hall Julianne Moore William H. Macy they've all worked with Paul Thomas Anderson multiple times as well so they, they've been in a bunch of movies together yeah just, like Magnolia I think is another one all three of them are in um, yeah I mean they they give good performances in the sense of like say the dialogue really well I do think the fact that that script has held up over time mm-hmm. to shows how powerful it was. I like the scenes, uh, like I love that scene where they're in the parlor and they're talking about taxidermy and, yeah. and birds. And you know, the fact that her last name is crane, you know, and it, I don't know. It, I think that. the difference there is like Perkins performance in that scene is very captivating where I was distracted by some of the stuff Vince Bond was doing, even though the dialogue yeah. was exactly the same, like the ticks. And, like, the letting the psychopathic underbelly creep to the surface, like, the way they do that physically, I just found a lot more subtle in Perkins. Mm-hmm. And, like, explosive. So, like, when he comes out and he's offended that uh, this visitor to his hotel would sort of casually suggest that he should put his mother in a mental institution, he, like, erupts. But it's means less when you're acting psychotic the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like, Vince Vaughn is, like... Yeah, it, that that is the big... Thing working against yeah. the remake, I I do agree with you. Like Perkins, the way he plays Norman Bates is I don't know way way creepier because it's not as showy and he's not trying to chew the scenery. Mm-hmm. But it's also interesting the smaller things they add to like contextualize it in the late nineties. Like uh, specifically with Julianne Moore's character, she dresses like a new metal chick. She works at a mm-hmm. like uh, a store called Hardcore Vinyl Records, right. and she like won't go anywhere without her Walkman. Uh, even when she's investigating her sister's death, she has to carry this, like, portable CD player with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are just kind of, like, weird, superfluous things to include. I uh, also noticed in the background at the uh, car dealership, they were playing a Rob Zombie song on the soundtrack, and a Flea was Flea in the makes scene. an appearance. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and kind of related to that, as far as superfluous things, that, one thing I noticed, too, was there apparently are a couple of continuity errors in the original. Huh. But the one that I noticed watching it was when she goes to the car dealership, there's, in one shot, there's a sticker on the corner giving the year of the car, and then the very next shot, it's gone. You know, just like a little continuity error that you notice, but it's funny that in the remake, Gus Van Sant actually goes back and corrects that. (laughs) So you actually see the car salesman go and take the sticker off of the car. So, I mean, it's kind of, you could tell he watched it a bunch of times and found those little continuity errors and like patched them up. Right. Which, you know, is kind of unnecessary. I don't think Hitchcock really cared about those little continuity errors, but it's kind of nice that it shows the attention to detail. Right. I guess. Yeah. Um, would you say this is recommendable on the whole to, to sort of reassess the late 90s Psycho? Is it worth watching yeah. on its own, or do you have to watch it like right after seeing what Hitchcock did? 
Well, so when I watched it, I watched the new one first. Oh, okay. And I hadn't seen the old one in a long time, so it was kind of just watching it fresh. And yeah, I definitely think it's worth watching on its own. But the better, I guess, more interesting thing to do is to watch them back to back. Yeah. It's a really nice double feature. It's pretty just, disorienting in a weird way to just see the same story play out two times in a row. Yeah, and just the little... You talk about the difference in like in the 90s, how they, they did update some of the dialogue too. Like I noticed, um, like for instance, in that very first scene in the hotel... Oh, for sure. They changed a lot of that. Yeah, where he like... The big punchline as she leaves is like, you know, you can't go with me. Like you got to put your shoes on or something. And the original, he's like pretty much fully clothed so that line is like a, a decent line but in the new one Mortensen is like completely naked so when she says like don't forget to put your shoes on it's, it's a actually, different joke it's a different joke and it's way better yeah um he also casually mentions fucking her sister in that scene which is kind of right. weird and the and in the original it's like oh yeah maybe we can send your sister off to a movie and turn your mother's mm. picture around so but yeah that's, that's an interesting touch-up because it would be just as shocking to hear that 60s line as hearing like i want to fuck your sister as well in the 90s like it, yeah. it's the same effect it, it's just a different sentiment no it's funny how like yeah, the culture subtly changes over you know, 40 years. But also in that opening scene, uh, kind of like Vince Vaughn masturbating, there's sounds of people like violently fucking in the other room throughout the entirety of the opening in, this, in the remake, which is kind of a strange uh, addition that I don't really think adds anything to it except to make it tawdrier. Well, okay, and also with the... Before that, the very first shot of uh-huh. the movie, if you watch the Hick- Hitchcock version, it does the same thing where you see, uh, I think it's Phoenix, mm-hmm. right? And then the camera zooms in slowly to go through the window, but it cuts like three or four times. Right. As we get closer in the, the remake, it's the exact same thing, but the shot doesn't cut. So it's really cool. It's like a continuous one take, of just going like closer and closer till we get through the window yeah and i do think that first scene kind of is indicative of the whole thing there's like slight changes make it a little more you know of the times regarding sexual stuff mm-hmm. the technical aspect is a little more showy yeah a little slicker a little slicker definitely the dreamlike imagery of like just images that have nothing to do with the film Almost. Like, yeah, like, what does the calf standing in the road really mean? I mean, it's just, like, kind of out there for you to interpret, but I... I think it I mean, works. I love that kind yeah. of stuff. I, I, I think it's a good movie. I don't, I don't think Psycho 1998 is a bad movie. I think it's a good film that could have been a great film if it had just realized how much of a fool's mission that shot-for-shot fallacy was earlier on. Yeah. And it pushed itself into like the weird colors and like the weird dream imagery and um and, I mean if you're gonna make it slightly more like raunchy, go full raunch as well. Like it mm-hmm. could have been even grosser. Yeah, it's like he didn't wanna like really piss off mm-hmm. the fans of the original, but just wanted to like provoke them a little bit. But yeah, if he would have like really just went off the deep and be like, No, this is my psycho Just full yeah. blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, no I no, I agree. I I do think it's good. It's worth watching on its own. But I do also think that there's kind of a reason that no one's attempted to do a shot-for-shot remake of a classic since that yeah. I can think of because that idea of a shot-for-shot is like a bad one, right. I think. And it, like you say, he realized at some point in the process 
that it was a fool's errand, but he had already had too much of that footage, so it feels kind of muddled right. in that way. But no, it's, it's good. It's worth the watch. For yeah, sure. definitely. Um, well, if you want to check out anything else we have going on in Swamp Flicks, if you look back to our February uh, Movie of the Month conversations, we talked about this ni- uh, 1992 body horror class politics satire called Society, directed by Brian Usna, with special effects by Screaming Mad George. Um, James and I are about to start watching every collaboration that those two madmen have done together. Holy uh, shit, dude. That's I, all I gotta say for Society. Holy shit. Yeah, I highly recommend checking out Society, and if you like the practical effects, like, monstrosities in the last 30 minutes of that movie, yeah. um, maybe check out some of their other collaborations. But don't look, don't look up any images or read any spoilers for Society. Yeah. Seriously, just watch it and... Holy crap. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, not something you're likely to forget anytime soon after you watch it. Sure. And uh, we, we will be watching, I think, 10 collaborations by the time we talk again yeah. next month. So uh, if you want to catch up with us, just maybe watch a few of those. And we'll see you then. Yep. Bye. Bye.